If you want to open up to Matthew 22, that's where we'll be this morning. And um, I will pray for us and we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for this morning and we thank you for the gift of the church and the opportunity to be here and worship you and study your truth. And I pray that spirit, as we study your truth, that you would teach us, give us understanding, convict us where we are out of line with your truth and produce the fruit of righteousness in our lives for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 22. We've been in the youth group, we just finished studying Matthew for like the past, I don't know, two and a half, almost three years. And um, it was a great time. Just one of the things you learn a lot when you read through and study through a book like that. I think one of the things that really stood out to me is just how wise, how masterful of a teacher Jesus is, was during his earthly ministry. Just every opportunity, looking for ways to teach, looking for ways to shape and mold his disciples. Even when he was brought into arguments, which Jesus was often dragged into arguments by people who were looking to trap him, people who were looking to discredit him, he always turned those into magnificent teaching opportunities. We all know people who just like to argue for the sake of arguing. It's like a sport to them. That was not Jesus. Jesus always turned it into a teaching opportunity. And as we get to Matthew chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 34 um, to 46 this morning. Matthew 22, 34 to 46. But this actually finds us in the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life on this earth before his crucifixion. And this week continually brought him into conflict with the religious leaders of Jerusalem during that time. Uh, Now, as you study throughout Matthew, this conflict with religious leaders is a continual theme. It's something that comes up over and over again, a constant feature. And leading up to the crucifixion, this final week before the crucifixion, the Passion Week, there's this building tension over and over and over again, this conflict is increasingly heightened right up until the crucifixion. And two important religious groups of this time that Jesus is regularly in conflict with are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees being sort of materialist of the time, they did not believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels and much of the supernatural, And then on the other end, the Pharisees who were the legalists, they were the experts in the law and they took a lot of pride in their knowledge of the law and and how they felt they were able to keep it and keep themselves in right standing with God. And these two groups normally were in strong opposition to one another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, while they were the two prominent groups of the time of Jesus, they never got along. Really, this hatred for Jesus was one of the few common grounds that they had. Wanting to um, 
stop Jesus, get rid of Jesus, and discredit Jesus. And one of the things that they would often do is try to trap Jesus with difficult, challenging questions. Questions about ethics. Questions about the law of God. And if you know who Jesus is, it's pretty ironic. It's very ironic that here you have Jesus, the perfect son of God, God in the flesh, the eternal word made flesh, Jesus who lives a perfect life, completely free from sin. Yet he is the one who is always being challenged by about his righteousness and his rightness by sinful men. It's really an ironic set of circumstances, yet the remarkable thing, they're constantly trying to trap Jesus, and we'll see it again in the passage we're looking at today. Jesus doesn't just merely answer their questions. Jesus actually proves who he is through the way he answers their questions. The, every time this backfires on them dramatically because repeat, what, what is the theme of Matthew? What's the theme of Matthew? Anybody know that one? Jesus is king. From the very opening chapter, Matthew is demonstrating for us that Jesus is king. And here you have these sinful men, Pharisees, Sadducees, constantly trying to trap Jesus with their questions and trap him in his words and in his actions. Yet time and time again, instead of discrediting Jesus, it actually more and more proves who Jesus is the eternal king, the son of God. And not only does Jesus teach about his eternal kingship and just the character, the nature of who he is through the way he answers these questions, he always also takes the opportunity, and we'll see it again this morning, takes the opportunity to teach about his kingdom, that he is an eternal king over an eternal kingdom that his kingdom is very different from anything of this world, from any kingdom of this world. Matthew 22 is just another episode with repeated examples of this. First in verse 15, it's the Pharisees who approach Jesus and they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar, which this is a big potential trap for Jesus, right? Like at this point, Jesus, his um, options from the point of view of the Pharisees as well. He can make the Roman government mad and we got him there by saying don't pay taxes to Caesar or we, he can say yeah pay taxes to Caesar and make the Jewish people mad. There's from the Pharisees perspective no way out of this. But Jesus says um, in verse 19, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He completely not only evades their trap, but teaches more about the kingdom of God and its importance over the kingdoms of this world. Then in verse 23, the Sadducees approach him who don't even believe in the resurrection and they come up with this ridiculous question in verse 23 about leveret marriage. Now that was an interesting subject for the youth group. But again, again, Jesus teaches about his eternal 
kingdom. And that brings us to verse 34, where after showing down the Sadducees, the Pharisees think, okay, we want another crack at this. They don't learn very well. They want another shot at Jesus, another attempt to trap him with a question. And so the passage we look at this morning, we'll look at it in two parts. First, we'll look at verses 34 to 40, where we're going to see uh, the Pharisees pose Jesus another question, a third question from chapter 22. And then the second part we're going to look at, Jesus actually turns the table, tables on them in verse 41. Jesus says, okay, you all have been asking me a bunch of questions. Now it's my turn. Let me ask you a question. And through all this, what Jesus is teaching us, what he's driving home is the point that he is eternal king of an eternal kingdom. And the foundations of this kingdom are the law, is the law of love. God first and people second. It's a kingdom that's far greater than any earthly kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. So let's read the first part of our passage. We'll read verses 34 to 40, and this is part one, question, a question to Jesus, a question to Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they wanted another shot. Jesus. Again, these two groups normally don't get along. They're teaming up against Jesus and their agreement and their hatred for Jesus is one of the few things that they would ever agree on. But in their pride, these Pharisees want another shot at Jesus, another attempt with a question to try to trap him in his words, to discredit him. Think about the earthly ministry of Jesus. Everywhere he went, he drew huge crowds because here's this man who teaches with the wisdom and an authority that nobody had ever heard before. He taught as the son of God. People were blown away, yet not only did he teach with extraordinary wisdom, he healed people. He raised people from the dead. These weren't questionable events. They weren't doubtable. They were people who were completely blind from birth who could instantly perfectly see. Or Lazarus was dead, completely dead. His heart completely stopped. He was in his tomb and Jesus instantly brings him to life. So if you put yourself in the shoes of the religious leaders who are very prideful about their system of religion, their control over the people through this system of religion. And then here comes this man who teaches with an authority that people recognize you don't have. 
and he performs miracles that are completely undeniable. And people by the thousands are coming from all over. I always think about that with the life of Jesus. When you're reading through these stories and you hear about the crowds, you might think of just a small crowd, but no, these were mobs of people, throngs of people coming to him. And the religious leaders who were so self-righteous and prideful about what they had, it's no wonder that Jesus was a tremendous threat to them. And so it's no wonder that here they are in verse 34, huddled up thinking, okay, how can we disprove this man? How can we discredit this man and make him look foolish in in his words? Who are we gonna send in this time? And they decide to send in a lawyer, an expert in the law. So the Pharisees, I mean, that was what they were prideful about to start with. They felt like, hey, we are experts in the law. And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what, that's what they were um, huge fans of. That's what they were experts in. So now you know they're sending in one of the, experts among experts, right? Like who is the top person we've got right now that can go up and approach Jesus? They love to debate the law too. You know people who are kind of into politics and it doesn't seem like they really have any conviction. They just like debating politics, right? Like they just said, whatever side even you want them to take, they'll take it and argue. It's kind of like my family. like. You know how people say, hey, at Thanksgiving, don't talk about religion and politics. Like just leave, like my family's the opposite. Like my family can't wait to get together and argue about religion and politics. I don't get it. Like to me, the family text chat on my phone is far worse than any social media feed I could ever find. Like I gotta silence that thing. These people, they just like to argue. They just like to debate. The Pharisees were very much like that when it came to the law. Their pridefulness in the law led them, they wanted to debate it. It was just a sport to them. And so because of this love for debating the law and the fact that they had so many, one of the things they would wanna argue about, which ones are the most important? Which ones are the most important? It's a reasonable argument if your justification before God is based on your adherence to the law and there's so many of them, like you're gonna wanna know, okay, I can't do these, I can't do them all. Which ones are the key ones that I really need to focus on? Like which ones are the most important? And so in their mind, let's go make sport of Jesus by asking him this question. Let's go, what the common theme with the questions they asked Jesus was, we don't think there's a possible good answer to this. Let's go ask him a question where there's really no good answer and there's no way out. And of course, Jesus overcomes this far more than overcomes this, but actually always uses this as a springboard to teach about his kingship and his kingdom. But again, here's another one. In their minds, there is not a good answer to this question. That's why they debated all the time, because it was unsettled. It was, a, it was a, something they could make sport of. And in their minds, Jesus has to make somebody mad with however he responds to this question. 
in verse 36, we see it. Which is the great commandment in the law? So Jesus, in, in these first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pharisees had drawn up like 600 some odd rules, laws that they had drawn from these first five books in their system. So like, okay, Jesus, of these 600 laws, which one is the most important? He's gotta make somebody mad, right? Because of those 600, nobody agreed on what was the most important law. But again, Jesus surprises them and really triumphs over their question in a way that surpassed all their expectations. Instead of just isolating any single law, he instead gives them the guiding principle that the entire law is based upon. And he does this by actually taking them back to the, book of Mo the books of Moses that they were supposedly such great experts in. Because this again is a theme that we have throughout the gospel interactions between Jesus and these religious leaders. And it's important for us too, is you can actually know the word of God extremely well in 100% miss the point. Do you realize that? And this is important. Anytime we're looking at the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, these things are written, inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us to learn from. Not for the dead and gone Pharisees and Sadducees. This isn't doing anything for them today. They're, they died 2000 years ago. Whoever Jesus was talking to here, they're dead and gone. These words are for us to listen to and for us to learn from and see how easily we can become Pharisees and Sadducees who know the things of God very well, yet 100% miss the entire point. Jesus is taking them back to the law and showing them the point of this. The first passage he goes to, the first part of his answer the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's with all of your being. Every component of your life is to be drawn in and channeled towards this love of God. That is priority one for any child of Christ's kingdom. Every aspect of our life is funneled in to loving God. And Jesus teaches this by taking us back to what the Hebrews would call, the Jews called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to nine. Um, one of the most famous passages of the Mosaic law. The first word is the word Shema, which in Hebrew means here. So it just became known as the Shema. And, um, Deuteronomy 6, 5 is the specific verse that Jesus focuses on here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. I'll take it to you. I'll take us to there real quick and read it. And again, arguably the most famous passage from the books of Moses. As soon as Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5 here, 
instantly, everybody who's hearing Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. They know this passage. Jesus says Deuteronomy 6.5, he quotes it, and this entire passage instantly would come to their mind. It says, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The message of the Shema is that your life should be consumed with a passion for living for God. God is to be the all-consuming passion of your life. That is the foundation that the whole law is built upon. And that's what the Pharisees had completely lost sight of. Their love became the law itself. This religious system that they had built, this human pride. Isn't it amazing we can get prideful about religion? But it's possible because what happens when you become extremely religious and devout and do all the right things? You get a lot of people around you who are like, hey, you're doing a good job. You're awesome. We like you. But you know you can do that and completely miss the whole point and completely be alienated from God. That's the problem of the Pharisees. They had replaced their love for God and their life for God with a life devoted to this religious system that they had built. And that's not what we were made for. As people made in God's image, we were created for the sole purpose of glorifying him and having fellowship with him. That's your purpose for being. And as soon as glorifying God and enjoying fellowship with God, as soon as that is no longer central in your life, your life has become off balance and out of line with what God intended for it to be. The Pharisees, by losing sight of this, had instead created this system, 600 some odd rules and laws that they would argue about, become obsessed with, but it became empty, man-centered legalism, completely worthless. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus wants to give them the second most important commandment. And this is great because they didn't even ask. This is like a freebie. Jesus is just throwing it in there. It's a bonus. And it highlights a very critical lesson for us as people who are members of the church, who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we want to live a life that glorifies Christ and honors him. It, it highlights for us that while our relationship to God is of first and foremost importance, very quickly behind that and critically important is our relationship with one another. Just look at the New Testament and the nature of the New Testament. It really teaches us that, right? 
Because when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he's writing to a church, a church that And he writes very much about how they're to interact with one another. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to a church. When Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he's writing to a church. Yeah, there's some letters in the New Testament that are written to individuals. What's interesting about those is pretty often they're written to individuals about how to live in the church and how to conduct the church. Other letters though are just written directly to churches. So when you study the New Testament and you hear somebody say, well, like, oh, I can be a Christian, but I don't need to be involved in the church. Like, do you know how much of the New Testament just doesn't even make sense outside of the context of the church? It shows us what Jesus is saying here. Yes, your relationship to God, that's where it starts. It's first and foremost, but your relationships with one another is of critical importance. Your love for the church and your relationship to the church is of critical importance. We see it throughout the Bible. You cannot have a relationship, a healthy relationship with God. You cannot have a healthy Christian life without being deeply integrated into the life of the church. It's just not possible. It's not how God designed us and it's not how God designed the Christian life. Jesus is gonna tell them that. He's gonna quote Leviticus 19, 18 here. Again, over and over again, Jesus takes these experts in the law back to the law. And Jesus says, hey, let me explain to you what you've totally missed. And let me explain to you what this really means. And he's gonna quote Leviticus 19, 18. In verse 39, he says, Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the great and foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus says here in verse 40 is remarkable. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Think about how that must have blown their minds Like these people who just spend all their time debating the law and are obsessed with it, they've gone through, they've created this extremely complex structure with 600 some odd laws and like they've devoted their life to that. And Jesus comes in and just says, let me make it real simple for you. Number one, love God. Number two, love one another. On those two things, that's what everything else is built on. Like you get those two things right, everything else is gonna fall into place. I love the way Jesus teaches because to me, life seems really complicated all the time. And I don't know about y'all, but at least once a week, I look around and I'm like, I can't do this. I don't think, I don't think that I'm sufficient for any of this. And, and, and I love going back to the words of Christ because repeatedly he simplifies life. I mean, he did it in the passage we looked at last week, right? Like, look, you're worried about all this stuff for the world and all these things. Look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be taken care of. I even think of Paul when he says, hey, you, know, you wanna know what God's will is for your life? We always make that really complicated, right? Like, do I take this job or that job? Do we move to this city or that city? Do we buy this house? Stay where we're at. We're making life really complicated. And Paul says, look, this is God's will for your life. 
your sanctification. Keep exactly what Jesus said. Keep pursuing God's kingdom, his righteousness, focus on that. These other things take care of themselves. I love the way the Bible simplifies life for us because that's just how I need it. And this is another one of those passages, right? Look, you're, you're, you're overcomplicating things. Love God and love people. Everything else hangs on this. The Pharisees had their focus in the wrong place. Instead of focusing on their prideful system, self-righteousness, legalism, focus on loving God and loving people. And it makes sense. When you love God and love people, you're gonna naturally do the right things towards God and towards people. We experience this in our day-to-day lives. Like how often do you purposefully go hurt somebody that you love? You don't, right? Like how, how often do you purposefully go wrong somebody that you love? In fact, go look at the 10 commandments. If you go look at Exodus chapter 20 and look at the 10 commandments, they neatly fall into two categories. One category involves our relationship to God. That's, that's uh, the first half. And the second half involves our relationship to people. Jesus is really just reinforcing the 10 commandments here, right? The first half focuses on our relationship to God. If we love God properly, are we going to have idols? No. If you love God properly, are you going to treat his name with contempt? No, Uh, when you love God properly, you naturally do the things that are obedient to him. The fruit of the spirit naturally flows from your life. Think about the second part. If you love people, are you going to murder them? No, if you love people, are you going to steal from them? If you love people, are you going to lie to them? All these things, these sinful acts towards God and towards people, they flow out of our life when our love is improperly placed, when our love isn't where it should be. When we're loving ourselves. that is when we fall into these sinful acts When we properly love God and love people, we do the things that are glorifying to God and good for the people around us. The Pharisees had a problem of misplaced focus. Their love for God, look at the the Pharisees, their love for God had been replaced with a love for themselves. And because of that, their relationship to God could never be right. Their love for people was lacking. Because of that, their whole system was wrong. Jesus answers their question, first, love God, and second, love people. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. But now Jesus is like, look, okay, I've been letting you all ask me a lot of questions. 
let me, let me turn this around now. Let me ask you some questions. While I have you here, verse 41 begins part two of what we'll look at this morning. A question from Jesus. A question from Jesus. Verses 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David and the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. The question Jesus asks is here in verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And their answer in verse 42, also in verse 42, they said to him, the son of David. Now are they right? Is the Christ the son of David? Yes. As far as their answer goes, it, it is correct. They know that the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament has been telling them to wait for and the Old Testament has been pointing them towards, they knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. It was part of the Davidic covenant. It was God's promise to the Jewish people. So this is fully what they expected. The Christ is a son of King David. In fact, this is an important part of Matthew. If you go back to Matthew chapter one and just see how Matthew starts, remember the whole point that Matthew is really driving at in all 28 chapters is that Jesus is king, the eternal long awaited king that the Old Testament has been pointing us towards. And so the way Matthew begins his argument in verses one to 17 of chapter one is saying, hey, look, the Abraham, Abrahamic, Abrahamic, Abraham's lineage, and then David's lineage, they both, they, they lead to Christ. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and then a descendant of King David. So it's absolutely critical. So what's the problem with their answer here? What's the problem? The problem is that they, when they say that he is the son of David, they're thinking strictly in fleshly material, worldly terms, earthly kingdoms. They were thinking of the Messiah as the one who would come establish his earthly kingdom when God's plan is so much bigger. God's plan is so much more. God's plan is not for the Messiah to merely reign over an earthly kingdom, which he will at the end, but to reign over an eternal kingdom that will never end. And yes, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is a fleshly descendant of King David, but he is so much more. He is not a mere man. He is eternal God. What Jesus is gonna to point to here, and the way he responds to the Pharisees with his question is, look, Jesus is not only king, you are right, but he is eternal king. And when I say eternal, I mean eternity past and eternity future. 
Jesus Christ is eternal king. While a physical descendant, and this is pretty weird, while a physical descendant of David, he existed before David in eternity past. And David even wrote about this in the Old Testament. The Messiah existed before David ever was. That's what Jesus highlights in verses 43 to 46. In verse 43, if Christ is merely a descendant of David in terms of the flesh, then how does David, because David wrote the Psalms, David was the human author of the Psalms, how do, and this is Psalm 110 in verse 44, of Matthew, this is Psalm 110, verse one, that Matthew quotes, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, Lord, the, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. It's a direct quotation of Psalm 110, verse one, a Psalm written by King David but Jesus makes a point here that just like all of scripture, while there was a human author who put pen to pad or quill to papyrus or whatever, whatever they put to the paper, while there's a human author who did that, ultimately God, the spirit, is the author who moved and inspired what they wrote. Uh, Jesus makes the point, just like all of scripture, in this Psalm, Psalm 110, David was moved by the spirit in what he wrote. You actually have the Trinity present in Psalm 110 verse one, which is really interesting. David, King David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of a conversation between eternal father an eternal son. Isn't that fascinating? The Trinity is here in Psalm 110, verse one. So if you go look at Psalm 110, verse one, and the way Jesus quotes it here where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord is all caps. And when that happens, when you see all caps, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's being translated into English in that way is the word Yahweh. It's, it's God's personal name. So you could read this, Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The father says to the son, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. King David calls the Christ, calls the Messiah, Jesus, my Lord. No one ever calls their future fleshly descendants my Lord, do they? Like, has your grandfather, did your grandfather ever call you Lord? No, no. Your dad never called you Lord. If you're a dad, you don't call your kids Lord. You won't call your grandkids Lord, right? No chance. So why does David refer to this one who will descend through him, Lord? In purely human fleshly terms, it makes no sense at all. 
And that's exactly the question that Jesus is asking them in Matthew 22. In verse 45, if David calls him, the Messiah, the Christ, Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus is showing them is that you don't know the Old Testament at all. Like you might know the facts of it, but you don't get it. You don't get who the Christ is. You don't get who the Messiah is. You don't get what the kingdom of God is all about. Once again, you've completely missed the whole point. Because if the Pharisees understood the truth about the Christ, the truth about the Messiah, they would be able to say, right? They could, they could have answered this question. Well, David calls this Messiah that would descend through him, through his bloodline, Lord, because he's eternal Lord. He existed before David. That while in fleshly terms, he was manifested at a specific point in history, he's existed in eternity past. He is creator of this universe, sustainer of this universe and Lord. King David could call the Messiah his Lord because he knew that he was eternal. But the Pharisees had completely missed the point. And that's what Jesus says in verse 46. Jesus says, no one was, or it says, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. But again, I, I challenge us, anytime we read the gospels and we see Jesus addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees, remember, they're dead and gone. This was given to us for our instruction, for us to place ourselves in their shoes and for us to not miss the point. So the first question I would ask of us, do we recognize Jesus as eternal king? Is our faith in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? The way Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Isn't that remarkable that that is the single most important question we will ever answer? Who we say Jesus Christ is dictates the path of the rest of our life and the rest of eternity. Everything radically changes and hinges upon that one single question. Do you recognize who Jesus Christ is? Because if you don't recognize that he is eternal king, eternal Messiah, and that his kingdom is of something far more significant than any kingdom of this earth, then you have missed the whole point. Turn your eyes to Jesus. It, this world changes every day. Your circumstances, your life changes every day. There's nothing in this world that doesn't change. Yet Jesus Christ remains the same. That's really the entry point here. The other two points of application that I would draw would simply be what Jesus tells us are the most important commandments. Number one, love 
God. If you take an inventory of your life and inspect your life, how you invest your resources, your time, your money, the way you handle your opportunities, what would they indicate that you love? It should be God first and foremost. Every, you go back to the Shema, go back to what Jesus says here. You shall love the, God, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's with every ounce of your capacity, every aspect of your being. It reminds me of Romans 12:1, where Paul talks about our proper response to the gospel is to make your life a living sacrifice to God. Are there, is there such thing as a halfway sacrifice? Like go read the Old Testament. Like do they wound the sheep and, or wound the goat? No, they killed it. Sacrifice is all in, 100%. That's the life that we have been called to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The second, Jesus tells us, the second point of application is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The church is the primary, not the only, but the primary context in which that happens. Not the only. When it comes to your families outside of church, when it comes to your place of employment, any activities you're involved in, God calls us to be salt and light in those places, to shine for the glory of God, to be a breath of fresh air to a world that is dying and completely lost and disoriented. So when we look to love others as, as ourselves, that expands again to all areas of our life, inside the church and out of it. But inside of the church, is a critical place in which this should happen as well. The body of Christ. When you think of the body of Christ and yourself as a part of it, how are you nourishing those who are around you? And it comes in formal ways and informal ways, right? Like there's plenty of formal ministries throughout the church and we need people formally involved with those. So when we show up, like we know stuff is getting taken care of, right? Like we don't have to wonder who's gonna get up and play the drums today. Like somebody signed up for that and has been prepared. And that goes for everything that you see happening around here, right? There are formal ministries in the church, formal ways that you can get involved and help. And we should absolutely take advantage of those because 1 Corinthians 12, seven tells us each and every single one of us has been given by the Holy Spirit, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives, gifts to serve one another. And we should do that in formal ways, but informally as well. The way you interact with one another, pray for one another. Just when you, like does anybody have struggle in life ever? Yeah, all of us, right? So like if God brings to your mind somebody in the church through the course of the week, that you can be praying for and encouraging, send them a text message. Like, hey, I love you and I spent some time praying for you this morning. And find out what's going on in one another's lives so that you can look for ways to love and encourage one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
If we love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, look, all these other things start to fall into place. These are the two foundational principles that the word of God is built upon. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you simplify complicated life for us. That as cloudy as life often gets and as hazy as things are and it's hard to know exactly what to do, we thank you that so often you give us points of clarity such as this where you tell us, look, focus on loving you, focus on serving your kingdom and loving one another and these other things fall into place. And we're so grateful for Jesus Christ that in the many times we fall short and in the imperfect ways we live this out, your grace is more than sufficient. And we also thank you for the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us who continues to change us and shape us and mold us into who you want us to be. And Lord, I just pray that you would, by grace, um, give us uh, obedience to submit ourselves to that effort every single day. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.